thank Colin and Megan again for being with us. Appreciate you guys. They are, yeah, absolutely. And in case you didn't know, they're getting married in about a month, so on New Year's Eve, so, yeah. So now you know what my plans are for New Year's Eve, so uh, going to go watch those two get married, so pretty excited about that. But anyway, hey, uh, we got a lot of people who are not feeling too well, uh, who are out. Uh, winter came and we discovered that um, we still have like seasonal allergies and colds and things like that, so I realize it's not technically winter yet, but uh, anyway, so uh, just be praying for folks. I know Frank and Sue Ann are out, Frank's, Frank's running a fever this morning, and Asher, uh, Bethany's got him at urgent care. We think he might have something going on with his tonsils. So uh, anyway, um, just just keep folks in your prayers uh, as well. Uh, we got folks traveling and everything else. So just, just remember, if you don't see somebody, pray for them and reach out to them this week and just say, hey, missed you. How, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, how you doing? Can I pray for you? Can I help you in any way? And uh, that that would be um, actually fantastic. So well, anyway, it is a thrill to be with you this morning. I want to welcome those who are joining us online as well. We did have a little bit of technical difficulty this morning, so if you're joining us a little late, we're certainly glad to have you with us. Um, I'm excited because we're starting, so, so we've been in the book of Philippians, and we're going to continue in the book of Philippians after the first of the year, but until then, we're going to kind of take a pause, take a break in that, and we're going to cover a, a sermon series for Advent called Christmas Playlist, and I'm really excited to preach through these songs and prophecy that we see and that we read through the biblical account of the Christmas story. And if you want to follow along with the sermon notes, um, there's going to be a QR code that's going to pop up on the screens behind me. You can scan that with your phone. It'll take you, give you a link to an interactive sermon guide, and you can follow along with us, and then you can even export that uh, to your email or via PDF and, and have a copy to keep. But you know, when we, when we think about Christmas, when I think about Christmas, I think of the sounds of the season. You know, those classic Christmas songs of the church that come to mind, songs like O Holy Night, you know, it's my personal favorite, right? Uh, O Holy Night or Silent Night, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, O Come All Ye Faithful. And you probably have a specific Christmas song or two that mean a lot to you or bring back a special memory or maybe uh, hopefully remind you of Jesus as the actual reason that we celebrate Christmas. But throughout the Gospel of Luke's, uh, Luke's account of the birth of Christ and the events surrounding it, we find people in the Scripture breaking into song and speaking truths about the Lord and his salvation. These are glorious announcements that the Lord is here, the Lord has come to dwell among his people. And this morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 55 specifically, where we find Mary, the mother of Jesus, worshiping the Lord and proclaiming his greatness in mercy and holiness and his strength. But before we get there, I'm going to spend a minute kind of bringing you up to speed with where the story is at so far, because there's a lot that happens and transpires in the story up to this point. So if you want to grab your Bibles or whatever device you look up uh, scripture on and open to Luke chapter 1, that's where we're going to we're going to be hanging out. And so during this series of Christmas playlists, we're going to be covering these different songs uh, that people uh, express throughout the story uh, of the Christmas account, excuse me. Now, to bring you up to speed, this account is coming from 
the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke is written by a guy named, wait for it, Luke. Okay? And Luke was a doctor. And so, even just being a doctor, you're going to get a lot of, of sort of intricate detail. He's going to be a little more detailed than some of the other accounts. But he's writing this to give an account to a dude named Theophilus. Now, I know that's probably most of your middle names, Theophilus. We use that a lot, right? No. So he's writing to give this account to this guy named Theophilus. And Luke takes care to give this thoughtful, this investigated account of Jesus' life, his, his death, and his resurrection. Because he wants to give Theophilus, he says, an orderly account of things about Jesus. So that's why you find Luke... That, he's trying to give an orderly account, he's a doctor, so you find that he gives more detail and there's more kind of um, body to that than, say, Mark, who, Mark is more like all about the action, you know, Mark is like the diehard of the Bible, right? It's like, it's like an action movie, there's lots of immediately and at once and things like this that happen. But during the time of this story, so this is an actual period in history, right? Uh, So there's a guy named Herod, who's the king of Judea. And he is not a great guy. <laughs> All right, I'll just be just just say he's a bad man. And there's this priest though during this time named Zechariah and his wife, who's named Elizabeth. Now Elizabeth has a cousin named Mary, but we'll get back to her in a minute, okay? But it's important that you know that she's got a cousin named Mary. I bet you could probably guess which Mary too. Anyway, she's got a cousin named Mary, and Elizabeth and Zechariah are both older. And they don't have any children because Elizabeth is barren, meaning she's unable to get pregnant and have babies. So one day, it was Zechariah's turn to minister in the temple burning incense, okay? So the one guy would go in, the one priest would go in and burn the incense. And the people are outside praying while Zechariah is in there. And he's in there and an angel of the Lord shows up standing on the right side of the altar, Now, as you might imagine, Zechariah was scared. I would have been scared in the same situation. Can we think about, just for a minute, (laughs) how terrifying angels must be when you first, when they just appear in front? First of all, I get scared if, like, um, a leaf blows in front of me when I'm not expecting it, okay? I'm a little jumpy, all right? And my kids love to exploit that, all right? I don't know how many times they come around the corner and growl, rah! jump out at me or whatever all the time but can you imagine he's in there he's in this place worshiping a holy god burning this incense doing the things the priests do he he knows that 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 god's holiness is there and this angel appears you know when angels appear they tell when they show up in scripture usually one of the first things you'll see they say is what don't be afraid do not fear have no yeah They tell people to not fear when they show up. So I'm just thinking about how terrifying it must be when when you're just hanging out by yourself and an angel shows up, right? Or like when you're at home and you don't realize someone else is at home. You're like in the bathroom and then all of a sudden you hear somebody walking around and you you didn't know anybody else was there, right? It's like it's creepy, okay? This is worse, (laughs) all right? So... The angel appears to Zechariah and tells Zechariah that his wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a child, and that that child is going to be named John. So not only does he say, hey, you who can't have babies, and oh, by the way, you're older, uh, your wife's going to get pregnant, and you need to name this kid John. Now, 
Zechariah is a little confused. Not just confused, but he asks how this can be because they're old. So the angel announces that his name is Gabriel, and he stands in the presence of God and was sent to tell this news to Zechariah. And Gabriel goes on to tell Zechariah that basically because he didn't believe this, that he was not going to be able to speak until the baby is born. So he comes out, <laughs> and he can't talk. And the people, of course, are amazed, right? And, and believe, you know, oh, he's seen a vision, obviously. So he, anyway, he goes home with Elizabeth. Can you imagine the word of mouth spreading about this guy that went into this priest that went into the temple, and he came out, and he could not talk? It wasn't that he didn't talk. It was that he couldn't talk, right? So he comes out, people are amazed, they go home. Some time passes, Elizabeth gets pregnant, by the way, and then some time passes, and Elizabeth is about six months along, and when she's about six months along in her pregnancy, Gabriel, the angel, is sent by God to Nazareth to a young woman named Mary, who was a virgin, and she was betrothed to a guy named Joseph. Now, betrothal is a hard concept for us to kind of understand today because we don't have anything like this we have like we have engagement right okay it's said colin and megan are getting married they're engaged right and some couples before that they'll do like this thing called a promise ring uh where you're like kind of engaged but you're not really engaged you're kind of promising that you're going to ask the person to marry you um but it's kind of right but so we don't understand but i don't even know if they do that anymore but betrothal is kind of a hard concept. Basically, what betrothal was is it was the parents getting together and betrothing the couple together. Basically, it was beyond engagement or a promise. This was more of a, it was an agreement that was basically that they would live in every way like they were married except for physical intimacy. She'd stay with her parents in the home and Joshua would wait until the betrothal period was over and then she would become his wife and would go into his house. Okay, and then, then that would be, so the only thing different really was they weren't living together and they weren't physically intimate. Betrothal was so serious that it actually would take a divorce to break it off. That's much more serious than like today's concept of, of engagement, right? If you want to break an engagement, you just say, ah, we're, I'm not, we're done, right? Maybe you get the ring back, maybe you don't, <laughs> okay? Okay. Uh, it's much more serious with betrothal. So anyway, Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her she's found favor with God. And she's going to conceive a son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he instructs her that she's to name him Jesus and that he's the son of God. And Mary isn't sure how all of this could happen, but she submits to the plan of the Lord willingly. Now, this girl, Mary, is probably around the age of 14. Because uh, they went to betrothal and marriage and stuff much younger than we do now, because by the time a girl was 14, she knew how to take care of a house. She'd helped raise her brothers and sisters, or anybody, you know, she knew she was, she was, she could get milk and make cheese and make bread and take care of the house and all that stuff, right? Uh, because that was just all they knew. Okay, very different culture than ours today. I don't know many 14-year-olds who are ready to be married today, okay? Uh, but anyway, so this young girl has a lot of information that's hitting her at once. Not to mention the thoughts of what are people going to think when I tell them, uh, you know, when they, they see that I'm pregnant and they know that I'm not married yet, right? And there were all kinds of consequences that went on with that. She could be killed for that. She could be stoned to death. 
So she goes into the hill country of Judah to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Because, you know, the angel's like, hey, yeah, yeah, your cousin. It's her six months. So she goes to visit Elizabeth. And Mary has some great and amazing news to share, right? But when Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. This is the baby that would be John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist leaps in her womb. And he, John the Baptist was the forerunner or the one who prepared the way for Christ. And even in the womb, the baby recognized that Jesus was close and leaped for joy at the Savior being there. Okay? This is just another one of the reasons why I'm very, very pro-life. Because the first one who recognized and it was joyous about the Savior coming was a baby in the womb. Well, Elizabeth tells Mary that this has happened and speaks a blessing over her. And Mary responds by breaking into a song of praise that we call the Magnificat. And that's where we're going to pick it up and read today. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand. Jesus, so we come and we hear your word proclaimed, we hear the truth of your birth proclaimed. That God, it wouldn't stop there in our hearts, but uh, God, we would understand that, that you were on a mission, that you had a purpose and a plan in coming to earth. Help us understand your word. God, help me be clear with my uh, preaching, with my words. God, I pray that if there's anything that's just of me, that you would just clear it out, God, that you would speak clearly to your people from your word, that you'd help me explain it well. God, this is about you. It's not about me. It's not about any of us. It's about you. And I pray you'd help us to understand and to know what to do with this word that we hear preached today. How it should affect and change our lives and make us more like you, Jesus. Be big, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. So what do we have here? We have the Magnificat, which is Mary's song of praise. And if you're following along, that is the first uh, point in your sermon notes. Mary's song of praise. Because ultimately, that's what this is, is Mary praising the Lord for what has happened to her and what she has heard from Elizabeth. Now, what we need to notice about this is, as Elizabeth speaks to her, we find Elizabeth filled filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit. And as you see that Mary's response is worship, we need to understand that 
The news of God taking on flesh and coming into the world brought revival to the house of Zechariah. It brought revival to Zechariah's house. The news of Jesus Christ, his incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas has enough power and truth that it can bring revival to Christians who've grown cold and gives new life to dead souls. It's still, the the story, the message of Christmas still has the power to bring revival to houses. It has revival, or excuse me, has power to bring revival to your house, to your family, to your hardened heart. The message of Christmas has the power to bring revival to our church. To both Christians who've grown cold and bringing new life to dead souls. The message of Christmas has the power to bring revival to Dixon. And we have to understand that this was a shocking idea to Mary and everyone else. That God would come to earth as a man. You know, we think of it, and and some of us have heard the Christmas story for years, and so we look at it kind of with hindsight, right, and go like, well, yes, of course God came to earth, 100% God, 100% man, born of a virgin. Of course he did. I know that story. But what we don't understand is that's unthinkable for other religions. It's unthinkable that God would wrap himself in flesh and come and live among us, live among humans, to ultimately be a sacrifice for human sin and raise again. It's shocking. Milton, uh, excuse me, Michael A. Milton writes this. The Greeks have gods who are like men, but who play tricks on men and imitate sinful man in celestial flings. The Norse pagan deities are like men also, but are oppressive and as brutish as Vikings in dealing with man. The Babylonian gods are ruthless, impersonal things that demand human sacrifice and fleshly indulgences to satisfy their vile and wicked passions. But in the faith of the Bible, we have a young virgin girl, a sweet-natured woman, who brought forth the Son of God who came in love to identify with his creation. Our God came not to tempt, but to be tempted for us. Our God came not to satisfy passions, but was one who left his royal dwelling with the Father in order to satisfy divine justice by dying on an old rugged cross. This is the story that needs to be told. So after Elizabeth blesses Mary with words that may recall Psalm chapter 1, And then Mary responds by bursting into song. Elizabeth's pregnancy, okay, is is of note here because of John the Baptist, but it's important, but, but the focus is not on Elizabeth and never on John the Baptist. The focus here is on the significance of Jesus. See, the passage, this passage of Mary's song of praise is typically referred to, I said this earlier, as the Magnificat. Okay, Magnificat, which, by the way, I spelled it wrong a couple of times, so it's okay if you do too. But the Magnificat, Magnificat is a Latin word for the word that Mary uses, uh, meaning to magnify. So this is a magnification of the Lord God in song. See, Mary's response to this big news Elizabeth is like, hey, man, blessed are you among women, and and 
all this stuff has hit Mary, and she's come here, and she's seen it confirmed. She's seen it confirmed because, you know, she who was barren is now in her six months, and she goes, and she goes, and she sees Elizabeth, and Elizabeth at six months, ladies, at six months, you're pretty obviously pregnant, most of you, right? I would imagine, okay? Uh, I mean, I know that from my wife, right? It was obvious Bethany was pregnant at six months, very obvious, okay? Um, uh, but guys, heads up, just because a woman looks like she's pregnant, don't ask her when she's due. That can cause lots of like black eyes and things like that. But her response to this being confirmed, that what, what the angel Gabriel told her was true, which she believed anyway, right? But she gets there, and she has all of this confirmation. It's all hitting her at once. And her response, the first thing on her heart, is worship. It bursts forth. And we see these types of things from other divinely inspired poets who speak truth in worshipful moments in scripture. We have Miriam in the Old Testament, the sister of Moses, and Hannah in the Old Testament, the mother of Samuel, and of course, King David who wrote many of the Psalms. And the language that Mary uses here in the Magnificat, actually, it recalls some of the language from some of the Psalms. Psalm 111.9, and, and these are not on the screen, so you may just want to jot these down if you want to keep them, but Psalm 111.9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. And Psalm 103.17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. In Psalm 89.10, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Psalm 107.9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. In Psalm 98.3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. See, here's, here's what you need to, one of the things you need to really grasp from this. God's people, God's people respond to God's greatness and his goodness. They respond to his justice and his mercy with worship and obedience. With worship and submission to his will. How's that played out in your life? How has that played out in your life? Do you respond to God with a resounding worship? And does your worship and your understanding of who God is and what he has done slingshot you into obedience to his word? Because that's the way it's supposed to work. When we see God for who he is and we see for what he's done, it wells up within us a worshipful, thankful heart. And the only appropriate response to what he's done is to worship him and obey Has what he has done and who he is slingshotted you out into obedience to his word? Mary was obedient, right? When Gabriel told her what was going to happen, she was like, be it to me as you have said. Now, this is not at all to raise Mary up on a pedestal, right? There are some uh, people uh, in some churches uh, who would put her in a place she should not be, okay? She was a human girl 
nothing divine about her. Okay, she was a virgin, um, and then Jesus was born, and then she and Joseph uh, did what married people do and had more babies. Okay, and so she didn't stay a virgin. Okay, and she's not on par with God or anything like that. You should not be praying to Mary. Okay. But there's something really sweet about seeing someone who takes God at his word and just obeys. And out of hearing what God has done and is going to do in her life flows this heart of worship. Mary, did you know? Yeah, apparently she knew. Apparently she did actually know. Number two. So we have Mary's song of praise. Number two is, it's a sweet song of praise. The sweetness of Mary's song. This is something sweet about this. And I love the way they they sort of play this out in, um, there's a movie called The Nativity Story that came out several years ago, and Oscar Isaac, who's in like Star Wars and Dune and a bunch of other stuff is in it, plays Joseph. And of course it's not, I mean it's Hollywood, so it's not 100% biblically correct. But they do play some of these beats in a way that really, I don't know, made some of it just really kind of hit me, right? And the last, (laughs) spoiler alert, uh, the last uh, scene, I think, is is they show them, you know, the the little new family heading off to Egypt to avoid avoid Herod's killing squads, right? And and you hear the words of the Magnificat, the the actress that plays Mary, and it's just sweet. It's just sweet. But, but this is a song from the soul. It's from her soul. She says that, my soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit rejoices. This comes from deep within her. The very thing that makes her her, her spirit, her soul, the very thing The place of her rejoicing is in the very thing that makes her, her. That's from how deep this is within her, this rejoicing. This is not warm, fuzzy emotion because I'm going to have a baby, okay? This is hearing the truth about who God is and it bubbles over from within the depth of her soul and how sweet that rejoicing is. She acknowledges her humble estate. She acknowledges that, hey, I'm... Just this lowly person. She acknowledges it. Her humble estate. And she says it in verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. (laughs) She knew who she was. She knew she wasn't a queen. She wasn't a princess. She was this virgin girl who was betrothed to marry this carpenter. And they're going to live a normal Jewish life probably. In her mind and have children and try to make ends meet and, and, and tend house and everything. She'd raise the kids and then they'd get old and they'd die, right? She acknowledges that humbleness, that normalness of, of her and yet all generations would call her blessed. It's, it's, it's almost more than we can fathom really. So she acknowledges her humble estate and issues um, this song. In this song, we find not just her acknowledgement of who she is and who God is, but a thanksgiving. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, right? But a thankfulness 
a thankfulness for what is going to be done through her. That, that those of humble estate would be exalted. And in the sweetness of her song, we find two truths about God. Two truths about God that I want to kind of key in on. Number one is God saves sinners. Mary praises God for the salvation that he is working. She knew who she was, as I just alluded to. She was just a young Jewish girl and that for whatever reason, God had chosen to bring Jesus, the Messiah, into the world through her. The good news of Christmas is that God loved us while we were still sinners. He didn't pick someone who was perfect for this. Yes, she had found favor with God, but it wasn't because she'd never sinned. Mary had a sin nature too. She'd found favor with God. And even while we were still sinners, even while we were still sinners, God sent Jesus, who never sinned, did not have a sin nature, was perfect. See, ultimately, Jesus didn't come to give us a holiday. He came to save sinners from the righteous wrath of God that must be poured out on sin. And the plan all along is that Jesus, who was carried by this virgin girl, would grow up living that perfect life. The life that you and I couldn't live, he lived on our behalf. And that death, that perfect death that would pay the price for all of the sin of the world, that would literally exchange our sin and give us his righteousness, we couldn't do that. Jesus did that in our place as our substitute, right? Like So when you're gone, uh, when you're a teacher and you're gone, you got to have a substitute come in. Someone who has to do everything you would do that you can't do because you're sick. And Jesus stepped in and died the death we couldn't because we had the sickness of sin. We weren't perfect. We couldn't die and pay the price for all the sin. Jesus did it on our behalf, in our place, and gives us his righteousness. And he raised from the dead. And that's the other thing about all the other religious leaders and all the other religions around the world. They're all dead. They're all bones in a grave. They rot. But our God is alive. Not only was he born, came into the world through the first advent, but there will be a second advent when he returns for his church. So God saves sinners. And if we repent of our sin and believe that good news that Jesus died in our place for our sin and rose, we can have eternal life. We have the Holy Spirit coming and dwell us. We can have forgiveness of our sins. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you follow Jesus. So God saves sinners. And secondly, God changes things. And friends, I'm really, really scared that some of us don't believe this. I'm really scared that we don't believe God can actually change things in our life. We see it. It's everywhere in Scripture. No, God doesn't change. God's plan doesn't change. But God changes us. God changes us. God changes things. God changes people. See, God reversed the common roles in the world. He exalted the poor, the rejected, the oppressed, and he humbled the rich, the proud, and the esteemed. And that still works that way. And that's what Mary says in her song. God makes a way. He changes your life. 
He sets you on a new trajectory of serving and worshiping him. God changes things. God doesn't change. God changes you. So Mary's song was a song of praise. It was a sweet song. Third, it was deep, deeply theological. Mary's song was deep in theology. We see that in verses 50 through 55 in this passage. The first thing that, that, that comes to mind when I think about how her, her song of praise was deep in theology, um, our praise, our worship, when we sing, uh, should be filled with right doctrine. Okay? Don't sing stuff, let's not sing stuff that isn't right. Okay? Uh, her, her song was filled with this deep truth about God. And sometimes I'm afraid we give passes to some songs because we really like the, the guitar <laughs> or, the, or the, we really like the way the, the phrase is turned in the verse or in the, in, the, in the chorus, you know. There's a lot of songs you listen to it and you're like, wow, that verse is amazing, deep doctrine and theologically rich. And then you get to the chorus and it's like, oh, that's not right. <laughs> There's so many good songs out there. We should sing songs. We should be about things that, that have right doctrine. And, and, and it's okay it's okay to sing a song that's not like way, way deep. Okay. As long as it's right. Okay. Doctrinally, theologically, it's okay. You know, um, but we should be thinking about that when we listen to the radio, when we sing, when we pick songs in church, when we sing songs in church, we should be thinking about, um, uh, about what is this song saying doctrinally? when we think deeper about it. And Mary's song does that. She speaks specifically some things towards the doctrine of the incarnation. The doctrine of the incarnation. There are quite a few theological truths in the Magnificat, but I want to cover three that are specifically about the incarnation. Uh, I believe the doctrine of the incarnation is vital to us to believe and to get it right. Now, we got to get our doctrine from the Bible because we believe that God reveals himself to us in his word so incarnation's a big word it's god coming as man it's jesus coming in the flesh okay that's incarnation okay just to simple it down okay so we do not believe in reincarnation but we do believe in the doctrine of the incarnation so this is jesus coming as a man okay now what does Mary's song, what does the Magnificat tell us about the doctrine of incarnation? What can we peel out of there as truth for us to understand today? We'll look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So we see about God's mercy. We see about God's mercy that, that Jesus, in coming to earth, was to show God's mercy on sinners from generation to generation. And we see that at the cross. We see that at the cross. God's mercy. Second thing we see about the incarnation in, in verses 51 through 53, we see about God's irony in the incarnation. God's irony in the incarnation. And I know some English major out there is going to say, well, you're not technically using the word irony correct. Well, neither did Alanis Morissette, but it went to number one. 
I don't know if it actually went to number one or not, but anyway. 51 through 50 says this. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. See, God... He's, he's exalted the lowly through Jesus. He's shown his, his strength with his arm and not man's arm. Because this is not the way, if you had to take a poll, like if, if Barna Research was, was back then or uh, Pew Research or any of these research places, right, and were to go and do a poll of the Jewish people in 4 BC and say when Messiah comes will he come into the palace riding on a, a, a war charger and, and be ready to overthrow Rome or will he be born to a virgin who's a peasant or a, just a normal common person who's not even married yet but is betrothed and will be raised and won't start his public uh, work till 30, public ministry till 30. And oh, by the way, he'll have a ministry because he'll be more akin to a priest than a king, although he is a king. And if you were to take a poll, you're not going to get very many people going, yeah. Yeah, I think I think the the yeah the the thirty year old guy yeah the, the baby born to a virgin. It's ironic that God would overthrow the powers of this world in a way that nobody really would have seen coming. He exalts the lowly. He showed his strength with his arm but not man's arm. He didn't use the power of armies. He used the most vulnerable way you could possibly come into the world, a human baby. There are animals in the wild kingdom who got a better chance than a baby if left alone. He scattered the proud and put down the mighty. Isaiah 55, 6-9 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And we still today do that, don't we? Just like they did. We expect, we expect that God would work the way that we would work. And we sort of try to box them into that, right? We're like, oh, I expect God's, gonna, God's doing this because that's what I would do. You've effectively like, made yourself God or something. Like, but God says in Isaiah that his ways aren't, aren't our ways. He, he, he doesn't work like we work. 
His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so sometimes we get real put out because we can't understand. And, and I'm not trying to make anyone feel dumb or anything like that um, because I've been there. But we get real put out. We can't figure out why God's doing something a certain way or, or we get upset that things are going a certain way because it's not the way we want them to go or the way we think they should go. And we think, oh, it's an attack. Eh, maybe not. Maybe God trying to get your attention in a different way because his ways, they're not your ways. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says, But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So the idea of the gospel is unthinkable to a religious person who wants to make their own salvation by their own merits or their personal goodness. It just doesn't work. The irony of the gospel is the most powerful being in the universe coming in the most vulnerable form to save those who are living as his enemies by dying as a substitute sacrifice for them. That's the other thing you don't see in all these other religions is uh, the, the God giving his life for his enemies. Because the Bible tells us we, we were enemies with God. We were enmity with God. And Jesus came to set us at peace with God. So we find out about God's mercy. We find out about God's irony. The other thing about the incarnation that we see in this is, is about God's covenant. God keeps his promises. He had promised salvation long prior to this to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he continued to show favor to Israel. Though they grew far from him and disobeyed him. I read a story of a lady who'd been grieving for a long time over the loss of her husband. She stopped going to church. Finally, after several members of the church had encouraged her and stood beside her, she committed to return to church. After the service, she greeted the minister at the church door. She told them that him that it was good to be back in church. She said, I was afraid of one thing, though. I thought that maybe I had forgotten how to sing. It's been so long since I did. But pastor, that message today touched my soul and I was surprised. Singing just comes naturally when you have faith. See, because Mary trusted the God of the covenant, her worship at this news was natural. It bubbled out of her naturally because she trusted in the one who made the promise. So it should be with us. The news of the incarnation brings revival. So here's the question that, that I think you need to answer today. No, I don't think it. I know you need to answer this in your mind. Please don't yell it out loud. Um, the news of the incarnation, the news of Christmas, the good news, it's the, the news of the gospel. Because that's like Jesus coming to earth to die on the behalf of the sinners. Like, it doesn't stop with a baby in a manger. Too many times we, we stop it there, right? Uh, I'm reminded of that movie, uh, Talladega Nights, right? Where Will Ferrell is, gets out of the car and runs around, and he's praying to this dear, sweet, 7.6-ounce baby Jesus. So that's not it. He didn't stay a baby. He grew into a man and died for your sins. So the question is, the news of the incarnation brings revival. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if more people hear about Jesus, revival comes? Do you believe that when people hear about Jesus, cold, dead hearts are brought to life? 
cold hearts are warmed to the Lord. Some years ago, the distinguished German theologian Karl Barth, who I'm sure you guys read like every other day, okay? Karl Barth visited the United States. His so-called neo or new orthodoxy was controversial, but it was primarily aimed at recovering a higher view of the word which had suffered under the weight of German higher criticism. Don't worry about any of that. It's just part of the story, all right? At any rate, Dr. Barth had completed a lecture at Princeton, okay, Ivy League school. He completed a lecture at Princeton and a reporter there asked him, sir, in all of your years of study, what is the greatest single thought you have ever studied? So this guy's world-renowned thinker and theologian. What's the greatest thought that you have ever studied? Barth smiled and shocked the audience with his reply. The greatest thought I have ever encountered is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it seems so simple But the depth of what's behind that, the message of Christmas, the incarnation, God coming to earth as a baby and growing into a man who would die for sinners. It engenders a deep, soul-stirring response to what God has done for you. I'm going to ask Colin and Megan to come get ready to lead us in the last song, but As they come, um, let me just say this. When you hear the message of God come to earth to save sinners, do you believe it? Have you trusted him? And if so, does your heart respond in worship? Or have we let so much stuff sort of clog our arteries, so to speak, Okay, if we let so much stuff clog up our faith with all the stuff of the world and all the junk going on that we've grown cold to that news and it doesn't bring out of us this, this worship, this soul-stirring response to what God has done for us of magnifying his name and obeying his word. You know, the other thing about Christmas time is if we believe that the message changes people's hearts, that it brings revival. And at Christmas time, we know people are more open than they are most of the rest of the time of the year to hearing that. Then our evangelism at Christmas time has, I would say, as soft of a landing spot as it has had the rest of the year. And I will just tell you, people right now in our country, in our world, in our, even our city, are deeply hurting. And they're going to look for all kinds of things to fill the void, okay? All kinds of things, substances, relationships, money, jobs, all kinds of stuff. There's one thing that truly satisfies. It's Jesus. And if we know him, will we take him at his word Will we take him in his word that he changes lives, that he saves, that he be magnified in our lives and tell more people about him? Would you stand up with me? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and then we're going to sing a final song and then uh, then we'll be dismissed. But I want you to think about that 
And think through these questions. Don't, don't simply, like, when, when I ask you a question like, do you really believe it? What does your life say? What does your life say? Does your life sing a song like the Magnificent, or is your life silent about what Jesus has done? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. God, thank you for bringing those of us here who are here. God, I think about those who can't be with us. Just pray you would heal their bodies and bring them back to, to gather with us in worship. Lord, help us to, uh, as we go through this season of Advent leading up to Christmas time, God, let the message of the gospel be always on our minds, on our hearts, and on our tongues as we serve people around us. Give us opportunity to share. Help us be bold and unashamed of you. And Jesus, I just pray you'd bring more people to know you. Look, I, I mean, I'd, I'd love to have them come to, and join our church and be a part of us. Um, but God, if you want to save people and send them to another church, that's okay too. Uh, your, your will is better than mine. But God, we just pray you would bring people to know you. Help us be humble and patient and loving. And let the message of the gospel always slingshot us into worship and obedience, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Let's sing one final song.